I call myself a survivor. I think that's the most apt term. And it's only really something I've called myself the past couple of years, really. Uh, but I think my identity when it comes to my accident is always shifting and changing. I used to feel like a victim, but now I feel like saying survivor has a certain power to it. So yeah, survivor. But it sounds, it's always going to sound wanky to consider yourself like a miracle survival magic person, but I guess <laughs> you have to call yourself something. So survivor works. What does survivor, like what does that term kind of mean to you and how has your relationship with that developed? I've done so much work on myself to change how I view it. The accident for me has gone on such a transformation. It was the most catastrophic thing that could happen to me. I was on the precipice of the rest of my life as a 22-year-old and everything changed that day. So to now call myself a survivor, I think, is less about the fact that I miraculously survived and more about the work I've put in day to day over the past 10 years to live the life that I have now. I didn't want to victimize myself anymore or else I would have just forever been a victim. I think what you call yourself is what you become. And survivor for me makes me feel empowered and galvanizes me for the rest of my recovery, which really even though it's been 10 years, is ongoing forever. To set the scene for people who maybe aren't familiar with you or your book, there is also actually a strategy at the end of your book about like ways that you were able to empower yourself. And one of those was just the press release. Like These are the talking points. This is the story. We're in and we're out. The second half of the book has a lot of strategies around how people who have gone through trauma or their carers can actually reclaim their life and chase their dreams, which sounds super cheesy, but I'm a cheesy person. And one of the strategies is the press release strategy. And I'm a former media professional, worked in breakfast radio, have done the red carpets. Like I love the entertainment world. So I wanted to add that small diva element <laughs> into my recovery. And the press release strategy is basically boiling down what happened to you in a really simple essence. And that is what you give people access to. When you've gone through something like what I went through, and even not on that extreme sort of scale, but maybe a breakup or you got fired from a job, people want to know the details. We're curious creatures. And because my story was so unique, they wanted to know everything. They were so curious, which I fully understand, but they wanted to know, what were you thinking? Were you depressed afterwards? Did you lose the will to live? What actually happened? And initially after my accident, I told them everything. I relived, I brought it all up time and time again because I felt obliged to tell people everything. And communication is really important, but you've got to pick and choose where you communicate. You can't just relive your trauma for some Joe Blow at the water cooler. So the press release strategy is basically turning yourself into a politician. So you've got one or two sentences that boils down what you went through, and that's what you give people access to. And if you rehearse it over and over again, eventually you're able to take the emotion out of it and it won't impact you as much. Because I boiled it down to just words and sounds and not the deep emotional impact that it actually had. So when people ask me about my accident, I just say, yeah, it was a parachute failure and I broke my spine, but I don't really talk about it. So when you put that full stop on it, people can kind of understand the gravity of it, excuse the pun. So I needed that practical element to the book because an inspiring story is just an inspiring story. But People need something to take away to apply to their real lives. And the press release strategy is just one of the things I've learned over the years. And luckily, through my writing, I've been able to educate more people on what worked for me.
Mm, so how long did it take you to write this book? About a year of actual sitting down, writing, I want to be an author. But really, the past 10 years, when I started doing therapy, uh, a technique for me to resolve my trauma, because it was so impossible to comprehend, I would make these videos on my laptop. I just record on my webcam. I would write fake text messages. I would write things on a notepad. I would take photographs as well of my recovery. So really the writing started almost immediately. And then in 2016, I wanted to actually get my story out there properly, but the story was still being written. And it wasn't until the start of 2021 that I actually sat down and said, I'm going to compile everything. So over the past 10 years, I've scraped every single aspect of my life. I've interviewed old old boyfriends. I've gone through old hard drives. I had to put everything into this book to make it the most authentic version of me. And there's stuff in there that I haven't told anyone. And we've just launched it. And while I'm super proud of all the hard work that goes into publishing, because it's literally ridiculous, I'm a little nervous for it to be out there because... I had to make myself vulnerable. I had to revisit so much to actually make the book complete. But I was also very naive to how much healing I still had left to do. And ironically enough, I do feel like publishing the book and sharing my story, approaching the 10-year anniversary, has officially closed a chapter on that part of my life. Yeah. So what does the next chapter look like for you? So many things. Uh, I think the best thing about doing the book is now I know what's capable. I told myself what I wanted to be. And it's surreal to go from that traumatized person that lost the will to live, that had to learn how to walk again, how to drive again, to this person now that's thriving. I was able to work in the media. I've traveled the world as a videographer. I'm a public speaker. I facilitate workshops. I've hosted red carpets. I just told myself what I wanted to be, and I fought tooth and nail to make it happen. And now I'm living it. So the book has given me even more confidence that whatever I tell myself, I'll become. And I'm not my trauma, but I am what happens afterwards. So next project, I'd love to do a podcast talking about my experience and helping people overcome trauma. I'd love to do more workshops, build my my brand as a public speaker and share this because I held on to it for way too long. And more people need to talk about their experiences. We need more education around trauma, around PTSD, We need more access to therapy. I felt very isolated during my experience. And if I can somehow give back by sharing my story, then I feel like I've done it for the right reasons. Yeah. I I just want to pick up on there. You said kind of, I am not my trauma. And while that's very true, I feel like people are very much impacted and influenced by the people around them. Yeah. I always say that I did survive that day miraculously, but I continued to survive because I had support from friends and family. That is what kept me alive. And I feel so blessed that I had their support, but not everyone has that, which is why I feel so grateful. It was really the clinicians and the therapists that really built me back up. And it needs to be more accessible. I was just very fortunate that I was still able to recover at home. I lived with my parents and they looked after me. They dressed me and took me to the bathroom and showered me. And there was no support for them. You know, they had to take time off work to make sure I could recover. So there's a really big push with my advocacy to show people that 
This happens to so many people. Might not be a skydiving accident, but trauma is everywhere and not everyone has that safety net to fall back on with friends and family. And from a community perspective, I'm only now starting to untangle how growing up as a queer person influenced how I experienced my trauma. And I wouldn't have gone to therapy if I didn't have my accident. I wouldn't have communicated my feelings if I didn't have my accident. I only came out very recently before I had the accident. It was in my very first relationship. And luckily, the accident gave me the access to therapy. I obviously talked about all my PTSD and my night terrors, my anxiety, depression, all of that. And then once I started to heal from that, I was able to unravel growing up queer. And that's the beauty of therapy. And I wouldn't have realized that if I didn't go through trauma. So hopefully through sharing my story, people will have a bit of a deeper think and actually go see a professional to unravel all that stuff we go through. Because really, the accident was Pandora's box to me actually healing, not just because of that trauma, but because of all the other trauma in my life. I want to touch on there. You were talking about how, you know, your parents were your, were your carers again. Thinking about your earlier part of your life before the accident, you know, you're a queer man, you know, growing up in the country, you had these secrets, you confided in your sister. Mm. And then suddenly there are no secrets. It was huge. I grew up very uh, unaware of myself. I kind of self-indoctrinated to be this straight country person. You know, I've got three older sisters and I was definitely very flamboyant and effeminate as a kid, but always felt like I had to hide something, always had a secret. It was so secretive that I didn't even believe it myself. And I I hated myself. The self-loathing was so easy for me. It was like a real automatic muscle. Whenever I'd feel ashamed of myself, whenever I would have fantasies I didn't think I was allowed to have, I would punish myself. And now it's crazy to think that that sort of wiring of my brain as a kid and growing up queer in country Australia and going to a private Catholic boarding school uh, where it's full of footy players, (laughs) I didn't exactly thrive back then. And I think that upbringing did influence how I interpreted the trauma. But thankfully, I learned that the trauma for me to heal, I needed to talk about it. And I started to see the power of communicating, the power of sharing my feelings and then asking for help. And that's a really hard thing growing up queer because you're basically raised straight and you have to unlearn everything. And now I find it impossible to keep things inside. I think I've broken the ability to keep secrets and I'm proud to be gay. I'm proud to be queer. And I think the accident influenced that journey because I saw the power of communicating. I saw the power of being prideful prideful that I survived, but prideful that I'm a queer person that is living and thriving. I think that's that's something to be really proud of. Yeah. I guess also you've had to kind of restart and rebuild your identity. There's a moment in the book where you talk about like looking in the bathroom mirror and you don't you don't recognize the person you're looking at. It's almost like, you know, the old tailor can't come to the phone anymore and he's dead, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember the moment where I had officially lost the will to live and I was mourning. I was basically grieving this old version of myself because the contrast from what I was before to what I was immediately after was completely night and day. I literally was on the precipice of the rest of my life, like I said. 
a brand new gay relationship, had never been in one properly before. We had just said I loved you to each other. I'd never loved another man. Six weeks later, I have the accident. But even right before that, I just got an amazing job in breakfast radio. I had hustled so hard for years and years and years, as you might know. It is very hard to get these jobs, and I just got one. I was living in the country. I was ready to move to Melbourne and be a giant old poofter in the city. It was my dream, and it was so close. And it was a massive shock to the system because everything was derailed after the accident. I did not recognize myself. I was in a back brace and neck brace, couldn't really move for four months, couldn't comprehend what had happened to me because it was so unique, wasn't able to look after myself like I was before, couldn't do my 10-step beauty routine, which I love. So I looked disheveled and sad. And after months of painkillers and not sleeping and terrors and fears, I was a shell of myself. And because I was so overcome with guilt, because I felt like I'd brought it on myself and my survivor's guilt extended to my family because I felt like I'd burdened them with not only looking after me, but the collective trauma of them seeing me die that day. They were convinced I was dead, just like I was in the moment convinced I was going to die. But it was actually the guilt, I think, that saved me because I didn't want the burden to be this everlasting thing. I had to give myself hope. I had to see the old Brad in there somewhere. And I knew it was going to take hard work. I was really hanging on to the hope that I would be able to be the person that I am now. And I just had to fight. Like Every single day, put one foot in front of the other, eventually get the braces off, eventually get the okay to walk again, walk a little bit further each day, do all the physical rehab, do the water aerobics with 80-year-olds at Craigie Burn Leisure Center. I had to do everything again. And I'm so glad I did because I can't even relate to that person back then that lost the will to live because right now I literally wake up and I feel grateful just to be alive. On that, who is Brad Guy? Ooh. <laughs> who is Brad Guy? I... Would love to say I'm an icon. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. No, honestly, I think Survivor works for me. I'm a survivor. And it's not just because I survived that day. It's because I survived as a queer person. I survived as a semi-paralyzed person. I survived as a human. I'm a survivor. And the book now has cemented for me forever how far I've come. And I've had the most amazing year and a half throughout publishing this book because I've constantly reflected on how far I've come. I've confronted demons that I didn't think I could. And now the physical manifestation is this book that really encapsulates how far I've come. So no matter what happens for the rest of my life, I will always have this. And now it's time to give it back to everyone that can relate to my story. What is your relationship to the queer community? Everything. Everything. It's informed so much of who I am and my journey from birth to now, it's quite shocking. I feel like the person I was on the inside, especially as a kid, is now the person on the outside and I'm still learning to embrace every single part of myself, but now I just do it with such ferocity. I love being queer. This is a gift. Now, I'm thankful that I had all the trials and tribulations. I had the bullying. I had the self-loathing. I had the disconnection. I've been fired from jobs for being too gay. I've lost friends for being too gay. Uh, working in the media as a gay person is hard. Being on breakfast radio as a gay person is hard. Coming out is hard. The day-to-day -day of being queer 
is hard. It's not just you come out, it's a bit awkward, then you get over it. There is a day-to-day of trying to navigate a world that you don't naturally fit into. And I look at my community for inspiration all the time. And I recognize the privilege I have as a white cisgendered person. And I can draw on the strength of other people in my community who aren't so privileged. And it's really just a blessing to have this community because not everyone gets it. Unfortunately, I think we're in this stage now where we do have to continue to fight. We're being reminded of our struggle every single day. And I think through unity, that's when we're our strongest. So I just try to tap into that strength. And from community to individual, that's really what keeps me going. So I love being a giant old gay bro. (laughs) Look, we we know you have that fight in you because you write in the book that and I'll be honest, I think this is actually one of the most shocking parts of the book to me, mm. um, which, you know, is quite a big statement for the kind of book that this is. Uh, but you say that you were, like, on breakfast radio in the regions as an openly gay man. Mm. And I was reading that, like, why? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I got shouted at uh, a few times. So I lived a couple of doors from the station, and I remember walking home, and I literally had the F slur shouted at me from a car. And I was like, holy shit. I just had wrapped myself in a little bit of a queer bubble and had this new relationship, had just gone through this crazy trauma. I was very distracted. And to move out to the country, and there are beautiful queer people in the country, and I don't want to paint the regions with this brush that they're all homophobic. Uh, They just are a little bit behind the city because there's less diversity, there's less access to information, there's less community. It's harder for them to connect. And it helped me growing up regionally to then move back to a different region in Gippsland and host breakfast radio. And I didn't realize it until I left the studio that perhaps not everyone would accept me. And you are treated a little bit different. It's like, and I'm sure a lot of people experience this, you know, when someone clocks you, just say you're an incognito. And often I feel like I'm dressing down, especially when I'm doing interviews about trauma, I kind of like dress myself down and I need to stop doing that. But when you're having a chat with someone and they clock you and their whole demeanor changes, I've had that so many times throughout different jobs or talking to content directors and big bosses at radio and I have to like heterify myself and I just don't want to do that anymore. And being in, being a breakfast radio in the regions was hard. <laughs> if you're not, if you're not treated like a straight person, the other thing they, they do to you is like, oh, you're the celeb gossip guy. <laughs> And like, yes, I did want to be the celeb gossip person, but they do reduce you down to your sexuality. And people would call the station and say very interesting things, Not nothing that I'd repeat on air. But I also got messages personally saying, thank you for being on air. Thank you for sharing your story. Because I was cavalier. I was like, yep, yeah, I've got a boyfriend. Yep, yeah, sometimes we make out, blah, blah, blah. I was very unapologetic about it. But even in my second week of radio, my co-host got a call from our boss's boss who ran a few stations in Victoria, New South Wales, and told her that you need to not mention Brad's sexuality so much. You need to tone it down a little because it's a little bit overkill. And she, he told her so she could tell me because he didn't want to tell me directly. And this is my boss's boss. We're trying to impress them and start our career in radio. And I felt so gutted when she broke it to me because I had already done so much work to be proud of myself. And now, again, I'm silencing myself. I'm reducing myself. I get into the automatic self-loathing and I'm just about done with it. But I'm proud of myself for actually doing it. And I hope that it meant 
something to other people because it meant something to me to be out and proud. Finally, this mm. is kind of a homecoming for you in a way because you started out with Sin, picking up on, I guess, the experiences you've had in the radio industry. What would be your advice to people volunteering for Sin right now who want to get into that industry? And what would you like to see change in the industry? My advice is just do it. No one's going to do it for you. You have to make the spreadsheet with every radio director in the country, all their emails, whether or not they responded, what their feedback was, tick it off. Yep, I spoke to Rod. Yep, I spoke to Graham. I'm going to follow up with them in three months. You need to hustle, hustle, hustle. No one's going to give you an opportunity. You have to give it to yourself. So because I was so present, I got given opportunities. I got given the role at Triple M in Gippsland. I got given the producer role at Fox FM in Breakfast. I got to host a Logie's Red Carpet because I kept telling them that this is what I want and I kept applying myself. So if you keep trying, it will happen. And now I'm here in my career uh, as a 31-year-old as an author. I've done a complete pivot, but I needed to start somewhere and indulge in your fantasy. You couldn't have told me that I wasn't Carl Sanderlands when I was working at Sin. I was like, this is my job. This is my dream. You've got to take it seriously. And if you want something enough and you keep showing up for yourself every day, it'll 100% happen. And what I'd love to see change is more government support for independent media. This is so, so important. This is how a lot of people get their start. I literally was at the ABC yesterday and bumped into this girl, Nat, that I used to do radio with at Sin. And I was like, my God, you're at ABC producing Radio National. This will lead to something, but it's a struggle because we're underfunded, we're under-resourced. You're going to have to get the Windex and clean the windows in the studio yourself. But the fight and the hard work and the struggle is so worth it because it won't just pay off with opportunities, it'll pay off with life skills, and that's invaluable. 